I'm going to, in continuing our study of the life of Jesus and as he stepped where he stepped and did what he did as we study this in this chronological order, I'm going to read three passages tonight. This one is important enough that I'll read it in each one of the texts. Speaking specifically of Jesus' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, one of the most unusual moments in Jesus' life for 33 and a half years. It stands out and stands against everything else that was actually transpiring in those moments for there to be this odd moment. So we're going to look at it tonight. We're going to begin by reading it in three of the different Gospels. So we begin with Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched him and said, Arise and be not afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. There it is in Matthew. Now Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 2. And after six days... Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John and leads them up into a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow so, that, so as no fuller on earth can, can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make, the, make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he was not uh, what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus, only with themselves. As they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept the saying to themselves. Now then, in Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. And it came to pass about, eight, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was, was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory. And the two men that stood with him came to pass as they departed from him. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here? And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. 
And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. They kept it close and told no man in those days of the things which they had seen. So here is this strange moment of Jesus being transfigured. And again, it stands out because every other day in his life was a day that you, would, you could have watched him, you could have seen him, you could have followed him, you could have heard him. And here we, we have this unusual moment witnessed by three and realizing how unusual this day truly was. So the first question was, I promise you as I study these, I'm not trying to teach them the way they've always been taught. I've tried to stop my mind from going to the typical answers and just saying, God, show me what's unique about these passages. And one of the first things that comes to me is, what in the world is this day about? What's the uniqueness? Why would God take Jesus into this moment? Why this conversation... And I can tell you there are still many, many more unanswered questions than there are answered ones. But it says immediately that Jesus was transformed. The most unusual part about this word is that it's described here as a change of outward appearance. The actual word is the same word where we get the word metamorphosis. We understand something by the reality of that word that what was happening on the outside, the glory being displayed, was because something was happening so deeply inside of Jesus. It was an inward change that couldn't be contained. It was something that was so radiantly different within him that it it came out as an expression externally, but it was 100% internal. So you begin to realize that this is not just a a demonstration This is something powerfully different happening inside Jesus. So that's kind of the the first reality that we have to come to, is that he was transfigured before them, to the point where he was even difficult to look at because of how radiant he was. This is one of those interesting points that I can't tell you yet what difference it makes. We look at this moment and we hold it in some measure of amazement. Because this is Jesus shining. This is Jesus. His face is glowing like the sun. His clothes have become so white. It says no laundry person, no fuller could ever bring him to be that clean, to be that white, to be that radiant. And we step back and we marvel at this moment. But that's not the true marvel. That's not the the stunning part of this story. The stunning part of this story is that for 33 and a half years, Jesus was able to contain that glory and not show it all the time. Far more difficult for him, because this is is him normally. This is him naturally. This is him unaffected by his humanity. This is Jesus in his radiant glory. And this is Jesus every day, except when he came to the earth and he took on humanity. He said, I will by my choice not let that show The greater marvel is that he was able for 33 and a half years minus one day to contain that glory. So that he didn't walk around every day around Jerusalem, around the Sea of Galilee, glowing like this. I guess the thing that I'm always asking myself, Lord, what does this mean to me? What is the significance of this to our story? Fascinating, yes. What difference does it make? I wonder about this. 
I wonder what God expects our outward appearance to look like when we are totally transformed by his presence in us. You see, this, this was Jesus having something inside him happen that radiated from him externally so that these three men could see it. And it was so stunning they couldn't look on it. I wonder what God thinks our life is supposed to look like. I wonder if there's some measure of teaching in this that says when we accept Jesus, the Savior of the world, when we accept God, the creator of the world, and and we say yes to him, and by the power of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, he comes to enter into us, and we're so transformed, I wonder if we too should be transfigured so that the world sees a radiant difference. And how rare that is, because for most, The relationship we have with God, and I don't mean to belittle this, but for most Christians, out of a 24-hour period, or no matter how way you want to measure this, the relationship with God is so insignificant that there is absolutely no radiance of the glory of God. There's, There's nothing seen, and it's become the norm. But this raises questions. I wonder what, what it was like. I wonder what Paul looked like on the road to Damascus. I wonder what happened in his countenance change. I don't know the extreme of it, but this I do know, that everybody who was touched by Jesus, there was something so significant about their change that the world around them noticed. There was something so significant about the leper, about someone who was blind, about someone who was lame. There was always a recognizable difference between what happened when they had an encounter with Jesus so that the world could recognize something had happened. I can tell you at at, at the maximum, we might glow. At the minimum, having an encounter with Jesus, the world around us should be able to see the evidence that we're different. Something changed in us. And sadly, for, for many, that's never even shown. So, John said we beheld his glory, and Peter wrote we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they did their best to to, to try to describe what this was really like. So Moses and Elijah appear. Why Moses and Elijah? Again, these are puzzling. These are just truly puzzling questions. Well, there's, in both of these stories, when you look at both of these men, there is something very specific that they represent. Who wrote the law? Moses. Who was Elijah? We sing the days of Elijah. Who was Elijah? He was a prophet. So what we have represented here before Jesus in this encounter was the law and the prophets. Why those two? One of them had been dead for 1,400 years. One of them had been dead for 900 years. And I found this quite interesting because from time to time I have people who talk to me about seeing dead people. How do we register that in any category? That's just weird. Well, I tell these people that that it is a very God-given gift. It is not to be feared. It's hard to understand. But when you come to this kind of passage and you realize here were three men who were seeing two men, one of them having been dead 1,400 years, the other one having been dead 900 years, and they were recognizable by their characteristics. We don't know how Peter knew who they were. We don't know if Jesus said, well, Moses, so good to see you. 
Elijah, how you been doing? How's the wife? How's the kids? We don't know exactly how this unfolded, how he discovered that, but they were recognizable by their physical body. You know, they've been dead collectively for a long time. Had name tags. That would be, that's probably, yes, whoever was facilitating the meeting had thought to provide name tags. That way, if, if Jesus didn't know, he, didn't, he wasn't embarrassed by saying, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. Hello, my name is Moses. I think... Some of the things we hold as the greatest mysteries we find almost casually told within the stories of Jesus. We do know that seeing dead people is part of this story penetrating this book. But here we have it very evident. So the big question is, okay, what was this encounter about? Well, thank goodness. This is why I'm I'm so grateful that we can look within the other Gospels and and read about it in Luke. Because Luke says this is what they were talking about. Luke tells us the point of their conversation. You know, I I teach the reality of progressive revelation. I teach that God reveals to us according to our, our story, according to our plan, and he reveals truth to us according to the time that we need it. He didn't do a dump. He didn't just say, okay, I'm going to give it all to you and so that you have all knowledge at once. He reveals it to us as it's relevant to our story. When we share things in... I don't know if you all remember several years ago about we had a man standing here and he was sharing his testimony. He says, I can look at the past 44 years. It's all miserable failure. He said, but what I've suddenly realized is I had to walk all 44 of those years to be putting myself in a position to receive what I need to receive today. 44 years is nothing to God. But I had to walk where I walked to put me in a position to receive fully what God wants to give me now. No huge surprises as we... As Jesus comes to this point, Elijah and Moses, they're representing the law and representing the prophecy. And what are they talking to him about? And I kind of personally believe, and I'm not asking you to agree, that this was the first time that Jesus had the full understanding of what in his humanity he had come to do. Because they came to say, this is what's going to happen. This is how the law is going to be fulfilled This is how prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And they revealed to Jesus the reality of what was about to happen. Because it says in Luke, they came to talk about his decease. They came to talk about what was going to happen next. And he came to explain it from the terms of the law. Because Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. How's the law going to be fulfilled? I believe that's why Moses was there. All of the prophecy of the Old Testament, I believe, is why Elijah was there saying, Jesus, you're going to fulfill everything that was ever spoken. And as Jesus was hearing these words, can you imagine what in, in his humanity, hearing those words, the inward change that that would create? Because it was in that moment, I believe, that the resolve hit Jesus, that I can, I'm going to fulfill what has been spoken over me. The revelation of the crucifixion, the revelation of the blood, the revelation of everything, I believe, came to Jesus in the terms of what Elijah needed to say, what Moses needed to say. I believe it came to him. Again, these are things that you have to mentally, emotionally, and spiritually begin to engage in and say, what was the purpose here? Well, again, Luke tells us what the nature of the conversation was, which gives us a huge clue. But it is by that blood, by the grace, by the righteousness that is being expressed here that's shown us, that is absolutely grace. It sets grace in motion. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And I believe Jesus has this understanding in this moment And I believe that that truth was so profound 
that it was creating such an inward change in him, that's when he began to glow. That's why his son, because he knew he was the fulfillment. He was everything in his humanity that God had spoken over him. And then we come to this strange moment when it's over. And Jesus comes back to them, and Peter, James, and John are there, and Peter, as Peter would naturally do, does something awful. It's not the fact that he suggested that they build a tabernacle for Jesus and build a tabernacle for Elijah and build a tabernacle for Moses. That was not, it was not the building of the tabernacle that was so horrific. What was bad in this? He did miss the point, but I mean, not only did he miss the point, he added insult to the injury of, of missing the point. What did he do? He said before, within, within God's listening, he says, what I'm fixing to do is I'm going to make this offer and I'm going to make Jesus and Elijah and Moses all of equal par. He just, by this statement, reduced Jesus to the humanity of the law and the humanity of the prophets. He made him at Moses' level and he made him at, at Elijah's level and guess what the father says in response? Wait a minute. That's my son. God the father's response was, it was a very quick and subtle rebuke. How would you like to have that come at you? The words of the father come and rebuke you openly from heaven, outwardly just spoken words and say, uh, no, I don't think so. Jesus didn't respond to it. And this is the oddest moment. Peter, James, and John have been standing there watching Jesus go up this mountain and they followed him. As they, as they were supposed to. They watch Jesus being transfigured. They watch his face begin to shine like the sun. They watch his clothes begin to glow. They see one guy that's been dead 1,400 years. They see another guy that's been dead 900 years. And they're, they're over here in this conversation that they're having with Jesus. And they stand there and watch. And the minute when God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. They all hit their faces on the ground. Jesus being transfigured didn't put them there. Elijah and Moses didn't put them there, but when they heard the voice of the Father, they could not do anything but be on their faces before God and in fear and trembling. That's quite a moment. Why would God be, feel it so necessary to bring that kind of rebuke into Peter's life for these three to hear? As I shared with you on Sunday morning about Ephraim, the great tragedy of Israel, was that Ephraim, it says in Hosea 7, verse 8, Hosea found himself among the people, and he was like a bread half-baked. You know, we studied this a couple of Sunday nights ago about what defiles a man is not what puts, what puts in him. That passes through him. What defiles a man is what comes out of him. What bothers God? Well, I know our sin. The, the sin that we commit bothers God. But if I, if I look at that... That Old Testament story, what was really happening that bothered him was, yes, the things that they were doing. It, it would be our sin list that we would create. Pornography, drugs, alcohol, sexual promiscuity. We would create this list and say, that's what bothers God. Top of the list, that's what bothers God. That's the, that's the worst. What bothered God? was the fact that they had brought their opinions, those things they valued, they had brought their concerns, their, th those things that were valuable to them, into his temple. To worship those things as idols. It was idolatry. He was upset. God was going to deal with Israel and Ephraim because 
He didn't find Ephraim out among the people. What had happened was that the people had been invited in so that church, the temple, looked like the world. Why do you think bothers God in this day and time? Is it the sins that the world is committing? Or the fact that the church has brought the the opinions of men, the values of men, the standards of men into his place where he says, this is what I want. This is my place of worship. What I say goes in here. God would be much more determined to do would be to cast out those things in the temple. Those things in his worship center that had nothing to do with him. So why was he upset at, at Peter? Because what Peter was doing in this unbelievable moment was to reduce it by his opinion. He was reducing this unbelievable moment by his own thought, by his own values, by his own wishes, by his own desires. He was bringing in all of Peter into the story. And God the Father says, I will not tolerate you and your opinion in my story. Why do you think he feels about us when we bring our opinion into his story? Is this the truth or not? Do I have the privilege to write things out of this book? Do I have the privilege of skipping things written from the heart of God to us to teach us the truth of the reality of what he expects from us, wants from us, what our life is supposed to be like before him? How does he feel when I bring my opinion and exchange his truth for something that I've come up with? I cannot imagine him being well pleased. I don't have the right. I don't have the privilege of taking the Holy Spirit out of this book. I don't have the right or the privilege to take the power of God to transform and heal out of this book. I don't have the right to say, well, God, yeah, God can heal, but he's chosen not to heal, John, because he doesn't do that anymore. I don't have that right. I may not understand it, but I don't have the right to take it out. I don't have the right to say, well, because I haven't seen it, then I must draw some other conclusion. I must change what he said he would do. Change the very nature of God from a God that heals. Remove that name from him. He's no longer Jehovah Jireh. He doesn't do that anymore. What strange arrogance that would be. What strange arrogance it had to be when Peter said, you know, my goodness, we could just build y'all a tabernacle here. This would be an amazing place. We could have tourists come through here. You know, we could sell little figurines of Moses and of Elijah and of Jesus standing there together, arm in arm. We could take pictures. You know, we, we could do this big. And the father says, I won't allow you to bring your, your perspective into this story. Why didn't Moses get to go into the promised land? Struck the rock. God told him, he says, first time, strike the rock. He struck it and out came living water. The next time they got thirsty, God told him, he says, Moses, speak to the rock. You speak to the rock and the water will come out. And because uh, out of Moses' frustration, what Moses did was he injected Moses into the story and he struck the rock. God would not have us believing for, for a minute that you can strike that rock twice. He was crucified once, and that was it. You're not striking that rock twice. You come to him once, he'll save you. You come to him because you're thirsty again. He'll, you speak to him, he'll give what you need. You, you don't have to coerce it out of him. You don't have to beat it out of him. That was basically the message. And Moses didn't get to go in. He got to see it, but he didn't get, get to go in. God's not very tolerant of us injecting our opinion our thought in the place of his. And here he's doing exactly the same thing. So there's Moses and Elijah. They go away. And Peter has this great plan that he comes up with. And sadly for Peter, he gets rebuked by the Father from heaven. So they open their eyes. 
fell on their faces. They opened their eyes. No one there but Jesus. And he has a simple instruction for them. When we go down, tell no one. Tell no one. Why not? Why would he not want those three men to tell? They would have tried to make him a king before his time. They would have immediately injected themselves into the story. How hard do you think that secret would be to keep? Sitting around the table with those other disciples saying, you will not believe what happened today. But it does say that they're able to keep it. I guess after you heard the voice of the Father and that kind of rebuke, when Jesus said, I don't want you to tell this, it's like, okay, I'll, I believe I can keep my mouth closed. Don't want that to happen again. Whew. Amazing story. Amazing moment. When you begin to understand what happens after this and Jesus' attitude about death and about overcoming it, what happens when he's standing at the, at the tomb of Lazarus when he begins to get angry? And again, we've taught this recently, you know, when he's standing there and, he's sitting, and the way it's actually described, the words that are there, or he's, he is like a horse tearing to get into battle because he is so mad at death. He's angry. He's, it's like a horse spitting, slobbering, anxious to step into battle. And Jesus is in that moment. He is, his countenance has changed. He is set for the day. And he knows what's coming. And there's resolve within him to live, to overcome the death that is set before him. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. What an amazing moment of transfiguration. Knowing that, Lord, something happens inside you that became evident on the outside. And I pray that, just simply pray that over us. The fact that something so personal has happened in us, I pray that there would be a radiant glory that would shine around us. And that the world would be able to recognize, not because we, of what we do or what we say that's different from them, but because we carry a supernatural reality where we go. We bring the very atmosphere of God into, into the presence of the people around us. And I pray that they would know it, that they would recognize it, and because of that they would be drawn to you. They see the supernatural difference, they know the reality of, of what your, your spirit does, and they would be drawn. We thank you, Lord, that you teach us so well within this passage that we don't have the privilege of replacing your teaching, your truth, with our thoughts and our opinions. And we know, Lord, we're awful at it. But I pray, Lord, that we, you know, we would recognize that we don't have to be because you promised that the Holy Spirit has come to, to reveal truth to us and we can function within that truth. So, Lord, again, we thank you that you have taught us tonight this unusual passage and gave us some clarity, Lord, that we might not have had before and that it would sink down into our lives and, tr and change us so that we would understand you and understand our relationship with you, Lord, like we maybe have never done before. We speak it openly and publicly, asking you, Lord, for that difference in Jesus' name. Amen.